it is something to be here. To see you all to be in this place. And we are truly blessed as a family. And we do greet you. We send you greetings. We bring you greetings from Columbia Bible Church. We meet up in Idaho. Uh, as we've been here with Johnson and Ann these past few days to meet you for the first time, to reacquaint with those of you who they met last time they were here. Um, I think that although I stand here before you this morning and will open up God's Word, uh, the most honorable thing that I've been able to do these past couple of weeks is simply uh, be an escort to Johnson and Ann and, and their ministry. We are truly blessed to know them and be a part of what God is doing through them in northern Kenya. As I talk to you about the the flame of good work that God is doing up in Idaho. There is a forest fire of good work that God is doing over in Kenya. And it is through these dear, faithful people here this morning. I tried twice to weave together an update on the ministry with Columbia Bible Church with a sermon. Uh, the first time didn't last very long. The second time I actually got through an entire message. And it's sitting in my desk at home. It, I was talking to Bernie last night and explaining my dilemma. And he said, it sounds kind of like what some people describe a sofa bed being. It's not a very good sofa and it's not a very good bed. <laughs> and that's what I felt like. What I had worked on was not a very good update and it wasn't a very good sermon. So I'm going to separate those apart, give you an update. I will tell you now we're finished with that. We're going to begin to look at God's word together. I think as far as life up there, many people ask right away, well, what's the weather like? Uh, are you used to the cold? And I can say that most of the family's used to the cold. Some are not. Uh, we, we had a time in the, during the winter time to be up in the mountains and it was my first time experiencing a temperatures below zero. Uh, Sniffing in and your whole inside of the nose freezing. It's a painful thing. When you take your, your van in to get serviced or repaired to a mechanic, no longer is it called a van or an automobile, it's called a rig. And they tell you, we'll have your rig ready in just a moment. I didn't know I had a rig, but now I have a rig. It makes you feel stronger. One morning, a policeman knocked at our door and I had no reason to believe why he would be there at, at the door. And I was a little bit fearful as I opened it up and he asked me this question, which I never got asked ever in California. Are these your cows that are out on the road? <laughs> we, we, don't, we don't have any cows. We don't plan on having any cows. But when they knocked on my door at Upland, it was always worse news than that. We've had the pleasure and joy of burning trash and burning our field twice now. It's been a, a great experience and a lot of fun. More fun when it's out of control than when it's in control. But we're learning how to live there. As you know, or maybe you don't know this, but there is no Chipotle in Idaho. So we are suffering in various ways. But the Lord is seeing us through all this. I think the mindset up there is we look at people's souls and just the, people's attitudes. There's much more of an independent mindset. 
in the state of Idaho than there is in California. Not that everybody down here conforms, but people are more comfortable up there doing their own thing. And that affects the spiritual outlook of people. A lot more folks are willing to even go astray from what the Word of God would say. A lot more people are willing to divide. And so you find, even among conservative churches, that we would interact with well. A lot of differences lead to church splits, a lot of difficulties that way, and so that's different. So there are many more churches, but they're a lot smaller, and um, oftentimes they're not as healthy because of this independent spirit. But at the same time, that independent spirit creates a, a, a commitment to Christ, and if you can get it going in the right direction, people are not willing to go the world's way or, or anybody else's way. They want to go what God has to say, and they'll move in that direction. For all the differences, the similarities are the same as they are in everybody's heart and soul around the world. There are souls there. Those that don't know Christ need to be saved. Those that do know Christ need to grow. And we are confident, 100% as I stand before you this morning, that God has us there. For all the bumps in the road, for all the difficulties, we know that He has led us up there. And we are excited, we are encouraged about what He's done in the church. And we feel like, again, we're just along for the ride, trying to be faithful, trying not to mess things up as he causes the church to grow in depth and in breadth. Right now, the church there is meeting, and our typical Sunday morning service would start about 10 o'clock in the morning. We'd have a morning service similar to this. Then we'd follow that with a men's time where the men break off, and we discuss the morning message. We have some application points. We talk through how we can not only apply it to our own lives, but to our families' lives. We then are led into a meal time where we each week bring together food, and have a meal together from about 1 until 3 o'clock. And it is just very unifying to eat together every single Sunday. So we spend from 10 until 3 every Sunday together. We oftentimes will incorporate after that meal time some kind of teaching and training or some missions updates or some other things that we think are pertinent to the rest of the congregation. We are meeting in a classroom. We have moved from a living room to a Cafeteria, we'll call it, an auditorium, not just a classroom, but an elementary school where uh, if we go into the cafeteria and we kind of take over that. We set up all the chairs. We put up a sound system. We set out everything that we need for a church service there. Um, it's, it's not a very warm facility, but we try to fill it with warmth with what's going on there in the people. There are Disney pictures painted on the walls all around, and it's just a contrast for what's going on in our lives, in the church life, and the building in which we're meeting. God is causing us to grow. There is a, a great hunger for the Word. Um, I am definitely, definitely not into numbers. Um, but so you can get an idea, there were 140 plus people there this past Sunday. And God has continued to bless us uh, in depth and in breadth. And we are encouraged by that. We're trying to just simply keep it simple. Just focus on the Word. Just do things the way you would do things here. So there's nothing different, nothing uh, beyond the scope of normal that we're doing. Uh, we have a, beyond the Sunday service time, we have men's and women's groups that meet uh, once every few weeks. We have a doctrinal survey class that we started with uh, ages 14 years and up. And we had uh, many people come to our fellowship dinners with the Leonas. We have many different forms of fellowship. We had a, just a surprise by the number of people that are involved in all these things as we come up with ideas about what would God have for the church to do next as far as ministry. 
we think, well, if a few people came, that would be good. We could do it for a season, then we'll move on to something else. But over and over again, we're amazed by the participation. And I can say, uh, fully participating in everything the church is doing. We're getting 95% of people at all the different events that are for their age group or for their gender or for whatever's going on in the church. And again, we are just amazed at people's heart wanting to be involved with all the life of the church. Beyond that, we are also having uh, outreaches, and I think two significant ones. Uh, one that's been going on the longest is a nursing home ministry, an assisted living community there, and we go there regularly once a week and minister to those who are shut in and those who need assistance in just living life. We have a couple of uh, ladies who are part of the church. They come regularly. We have people that work there who are part of the church, and we see it as an opportunity, not just during the weekly times, but special holidays like Easter, like Christmas, where we can go and present more of God's love to them and encourage them in that way. Once a month, we go door to door. That's a novel concept, isn't it? So we have a great time, again, doing what we did here as a family. We simply worked together with the elders there and decided that's a good way to not only impact the community, but to keep our faith on edge, keep our faith growing in Christ. And that's going very well. We meet the same kinds of people that you'd meet here uh, behind the doors. I would substitute the number of people who are following the Roman Catholic religion here with the Mormon religion up there. And it's the same idea, working your way to God, but it's different as far as the nuances and the beliefs. And we would label the Mormons definitely as a cult, and they have impacted that community greatly. And so we need to continue to grow and understand better how we can reach out to those people that need Christ and are so, so deceived. I've been surprised as well by the international aspect of the community there. I mean, you think Idaho, you think monocultural usually, but God's doing something. We have a a great influx of Hispanic folks. We have uh, somebody in in the UN or somebody working with placing peoples that come internationally is placing folks here. We have a, a pocket of Russians. We have people we've met from Uzbekistan. We have a Sudanese family that's involved with the church. Um, we just last week met a gal who had immigrated from Holland, and you just don't think that would happen in a place like Nampa, Idaho. People seem to be hungry for doctrine, and it's an opportunity not just to feed them that already know, but people with that hunger have different perspectives and So the doctrinal unity that you share here, uh, we are working on moving in that direction. Not that we want to be uniform, but we want to understand what the Scripture teaches in all aspects of theology and doctrine and what it teaches how to live and then bring that together and then move forward together. We have people from various doctrinal perspectives, but they're hungry, not just for the Word. And I, I think I can say this safely. They're hungry for a healthy church. And God has allowed us to be that. He's given us great elders to work alongside of. Even the difficult times that we've worked through, we've seen just great unity among the leadership of the church and great unity among the body as well. We've had counseling opportunities, um, many opportunities to do so many different kinds of ministry, and we are just encouraged. And we know it is at least in part because of your prayers. Uh, When we are up there... We are so encouraged knowing, especially on Sunday mornings, I think of this every Sunday, that there are people down at Foothill praying for us right now. 
that is beyond description of how encouraging that is, knowing that there are other people there praying for you who are part of God's church. And they're praying for you while you're up there doing your ministry. And the church knows you're praying for them. They love you. They communicate warmest greetings. We pray for you. We find out updates, what we can pray for, for the church body, individuals in Foot, at Foothill who need prayer. We pray for you just as well. And so we do feel very connected, even though thousands of miles separate us. Uh, only 14 hours, though, by car, if you would ever want to come up to visit. Well, in our men and women's study, we are studying the doctrine of sin, more specifically the mortification of sin. And that is a fancy word for the putting to death of sin in our lives. And you might think, why are you studying that? What would cause you to do that so early in the life of the church? Uh, We have gone through the book of Philippians together, and we're just about finished with the book of Revelation. And as I looked at the greatness of Christ in the book of Revelation, I was thinking with the other elders and other people in the church, what could we look at next? And we we decided to take a step of faith and simply gather together and move through this book called The Mortification of Sin by a Puritan author named John Owen. And again, it was something that we thought, well, let's try this. Let's see what God does by getting together and doing this very odd kind of Bible study by reading together a Puritan author who is very difficult to read and see what God would show us. And again, everybody's showing up, so we're going to trust that God's doing something here and we'll continue with it. But my own acquaintance with John Owen began about 12 years ago as I was perusing the bookstore at seminary and I came across a Puritan section that I had never seen before, a Puritan section in a bookstore. And I was looking at the different titles and one jumped out at me, volume six of John Owen's works, and it was called Temptation and Sin. And I said, well, I can relate to that. So maybe I should get this book and see what it has to say. And indeed I did. I opened it and I read it and it was just so rich, so full of information about not only the aspect of sin in life, but then how to take care of it. And that it impacted me and stayed with me through the years. And so as we, as a church, have gone through so much good on focusing on Christ and His glory through the book of Revelation, uh, we wanted to fulfill what John Bunyan said, another Puritan, he wrote A Pilgrim's Progress. We wanted to fulfill what he said, is that whenever you look into Scripture, you should see two things. One is the glory of Christ, and the other is the depth of your sin. And so we had spent so much time talking about the glory of Christ, not that you can ever talk enough about that, but we thought it would be good to blend that together now with a study on our sin that we might see together the depth of our depravity and the wonders of Jesus Christ. And so that was our attempt, that was our thinking behind it, and that leads me today to what we want to talk about this morning from the Word. And I want to invite you to open to Colossians chapter 3. If you're using a pew Bible in front of you, it's on page 1180. And as we find our way there, I would ask you to bow your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. 
We thank you so much for the privilege that we have to be together here as brothers and sisters in Christ. We thank you for the joy that we have in serving a risen Savior. We thank you for the hope that we have that he is going to return and bring us to the place he is preparing for us right now and that we will spend eternity with you in heaven. We thank you for your blessing upon us, separate congregations yet united because we're accomplishing the same goals by your power. We thank you also for your word. We thank you for its power, for its clarity, for its authority in our lives. Lord, your word says, it is to this one that you will look, to him, to her who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at your word. And I pray this morning as we look into your word that we wouldn't be content with being entertained or or taught intellectually, but that we would hear your word, we would read your word for what it is, and we would tremble at it. We would understand the weight of these words on these pages in our Bibles, and we would be eager to apply them, to understand them, to make them part of who we are as your children. We thank you that we have this time together and we pray that you would cause us by your spirit to make the most of it for your glory. And we pray these things in the only name that we can come to you. That is Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5. Let's start at verse 1 and read together just through the first half of verse 5. The Apostle Paul writes, If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Therefore, put to death the members which are upon the earth. This morning, I'd like us to focus in, to hone in on those first words of verse 5. Therefore, put to death the members which are upon the earth. I want to understand together what those mean. I want to be able to understand how we can apply those to our lives so that we can fulfill the command that's given to us here in the first half of verse 5. We'll go through it and we'll see together that, first of all, that there is a mortal enemy. And that enemy seeks to destroy us. We'll see as well there is a God-given strategy about how to handle that enemy. Then we'll see that there is an indispensable duty about applying that God-given strategy to our lives. Putting it into practice. And finally, the best news of all, there is a supernatural provision given to each one of you who have called upon the name of Christ for salvation, that you can fight against this enemy. Let's look first at our mortal enemy. Look again at verse 5. Therefore, put to death the members which are upon the earth. We are told we are to be putting something to death. And what I want to answer here is, what are we supposed to be killing? What's going on around us or in us that we're supposed to be putting to death? What are we supposed to be defeating 
that is labeled here as an enemy. I think that as Christians, as we look at the Scripture and compare all the details it gives to you and to me about what a Christian is, what a mature follower of Christ looks like, and then we look at our own lives, we see the disparity between the Bible and our own lives. And that causes us to know that there's something wrong here. There's something out of place. We have the desire to live holy, but something is holding us back. Something is keeping us from fully following after God with all of the desires of our heart every moment of every day like we want to. As Christians as well, knowing that there is an enemy, we can aim our guns in the wrong direction. We know there's something, but if we don't let the Scripture inform us of what that something is, we are shooting in the wrong direction and not applying what God is telling us to do here. Some of us would point at the past and say, you know what, the reason I can't fulfill what God says in the Scripture is because of my past. You don't understand all the difficulties I've had growing up. All the people around me, all the things that happened to me, all the things that I fell into. My past is the reason that I can't fulfill this requirement of living a holy life. Others would say, well, it's not my past, but it's society. You see, the area in which I grew up. Yeah, I maybe had a good family and I myself was okay, but it's the society around me. It's dragging me down. And so we aim our guns where? At society. Saying, if I could just eliminate society from my life, then I could live a holy life for Jesus Christ. Others might say, no, it's, it's the spiritual realm. The devil makes me do these things. And I'm not here to minimize the spiritual warfare, the battles that go on in all of our lives. It's constantly around us. But that's not where our guns are supposed to be aimed. That is not our mortal enemy. Look what it says. Put to death the members which are upon the earth. Your translation might say the members of your earthly body or what is earthly in you. Well, what does that mean? Members which are upon the earth. What is earthly in you? Look at the second half of verse 5 and we get an idea here of what this is talking about. Paul says immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which amounts to idolatry. Another list of evil deeds tied into the same concept is found in Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Talking about sinful actions that we are to be disposing of in our own lives. And so the fact that there are Items here listed out as specific sins. This tells us that this is not talking about the members of the, your body that you can see. It's not talking about putting to death your hands or your feet or your eyes or your mouth. It's what those things do that you were supposed to be putting to death. It's something spiritual. Flip over to Galatians 5.17. And we can see synonyms in Scripture... Synonymous ideas for this phrase, members of your earthly body. Galatians 5.17 For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another. So there you have the word flesh that is encapsulating this idea of our enemy that lives with inside of us. Galatians 5.19, just a few verses below. 
Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. And then there's the list there for you. So the works or the deeds of the flesh are also synonymous as an idea to this description of members which are on the earth. Flip over to your left again to Romans chapter 7 and find your way to verse 17. This is perhaps the fullest description of this indwelling entity in each one of us that we are to be killing. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 7, 17, So now, no longer am I the one doing it, sin, but sin which indwells me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the wishing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. For the good that I wish I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not wish. Verse 20. But if I am doing the very thing I do not wish, here's the point, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. So here he uses in this passage the word sin to describe that entity that indwells in each one of us that causes us to do wrong, to go against what God has commanded in Scripture. So we have now, from different passages, members of our earthly body, the flesh, the works or the deeds of the flesh, and now simply the word sin. And if you put all these together, you have the synonymous idea of an encompassing sinful desire that lives inside of each one of us. We have a proclivity or a penchant or a leaning toward wanting to sin all the time. It's inside of each one of us. In the unbeliever, sin reigns freely. The unbeliever has sin in him, in her, and he just follows it. He obeys it. He does whatever it says. He just moves in that direction. In the believer, sin does not reign, but it is resident in each one of us. It's so easy as Christians to say, okay, I've come to Christ and I shouldn't be having these problems. I've come to Christ and I should be over this. And we're not saying that God doesn't cause you to grow and you become more mature and you conquer sinful areas in life and you become more holy as a Christian. But the surprise comes after we've been walking with Christ for 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years and we're still wrestling with sin. And we get tired of it. We want to be finished. And we don't know how our own life lines up with what Scripture says. And what we see here now is that the mortal enemy within each one of us is sin. It still exists. It still spiritually lives and breathes in each one of us as followers of Jesus Christ. And it's so dangerous. It's so mortal because it's not out there. It's right here. It's in us. And it's so deadly. It's a greater enemy than the devil. How do we know that? Spiritual battle is an issue. It is true. We wage war against the spiritual issues of life. Ephesians 6 teaches us. The next book we're going to go through as a congregation is James. And I was reading through chapter 1 several times recently. And listen to what James says about sin. Chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Jump down to verse 14. 
but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Deceived about what? Deceived about what's causing me to sin. It's nothing out there. Physically, spiritually, societally, historically, it's all in here. A few months ago, we moved through chapter 20 of the book of Revelation, and that's the chapter about the millennium, that wonderful, glorious time where Christ will reign for a thousand years on earth. It'll be perfect government, perfect society, and there'll be men and women living there. And you know what happens at the end of that thousand years. God releases Satan just one more time and he goes out into all the world. And what does he find? He finds willing hearts who desire to rebel against Christ himself, who's been reigning on earth for a thousand years. Why can they do that? Because sin still reigns in them. They are eager to rebel against Christ. They're looking for someone just to lead them. And Satan fits the bill perfectly. We have a mortal enemy, and that is sin. Back to Colossians and chapter 3. Let's look at our God-given strategy. What has God told us to do about this? Beginning at verse 5 again. Therefore, put to death the members which are upon the earth. Now, if you have a New American Standard Bible, like I do, the text says, therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to, and it goes on and describes the individual aspects of sin there. I think that translation is too passive. That's why in your footnote you have, in the New American Standard, put to death the members which are upon the earth. If you have English Standard, King James, New King James, NIV, New Living Translation, any other translation, you have the idea of putting to death or mortifying the sin that's in your life. The verb there is from the Greek word nekrao, you can hear the word necrosis there. It means to cause, to die, or to make a corpse of, in picturesque words. And the subject here, in putting to death these earthly members, or this flesh, or this sin, the subject of the sentence is you. You are to be doing something here. This is not passive. This is not just going to happen. This is an active verb that we need to be doing in our Christian lives. The goal here, the, the ideal here, is not that we just remain passive. We remain idle and we let God do whatever He's going to do in His own time and we're just waiting for Him to do it. There is something that we need to be doing and that something is putting to death sin. We are to continually repress it, to do violence to it, and to fight against it. And this is not something we can do just once and be finished. This is something you will do in your life continually. As sin raises up, you are called to fight it. As your flesh begins to take more power of your life, you are called to mortify, to kill it, to eliminate it from making you move in any directions in thought or in action. Just as sure as sin is resident in you, it will never die as long as you're living on earth. That's the way God has worked it out. That is his plan. 
the Apostle Paul himself said of himself after walking with Christ for 20 plus years, wretched man that I am. Back in Psalm 51 and verse 3, David said, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. It's just a part of life. We've got to understand it's part of who we are. It's part of what we are as mankind. So we can't be surprised by any ongoing battle. And we understand that we are to try to kill it, but it's never going to be killed during our life on earth. We are therefore called to weaken it. Do all that we can to weaken it, not to have the power. If there's an enemy in front of you and you know your goal is to conquer that enemy, to fight against it, but it is in a sense undefeatable, it can't be killed because of the, the situation in which you are in, you would want to at least weaken it, to do something that is moving in the direction of putting it to death, although it will never fully die on its own. And so we are called to weaken it. We're never finished carrying out this God-given strategy. It's a lifelong assault. It's an ongoing fight. And God says, this is how you are to fight it. You are to try to kill it. You are to continue to mortify the flesh. But why is it necessary? If a command wasn't enough for you, I want to look at some different scripture that will communicate the indispensability of this duty in the Christian life. Why do I need to be doing this? We know, looking at just the first few words of verse 5 in Colossians 3, it's a command for us. We have to be doing this. Therefore, put to death an imperative. We are called to do this as Christians. The first word there in verse 5 is therefore, and that brings us back to verses 1 through 4. But you see here that we are positionally, in verses 1 and 2, described as people that are sitting with Christ, that are with Him, that positionally we have Him in our lives and we are with Him there. And because of who we are positionally, therefore, we are to work to try to make our lives match with who He is and who we are. And so we have to fight against these sinful tendencies in our, all of our lives. 1 Peter 1, verses 14 and 15 commands this, Do not be conformed to former lust, but be holy yourselves. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, we are told, Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. All these ideas are commands to us as Christians. We are to follow after Christ and obey the clear commandments of Scripture. We looked at Galatians 5.17 earlier. Let me read that to you again. What will happen if you don't put to death the deeds of the flesh? Galatians 5.17 For the flesh, and this will describe more uh, what it is and, and what it wants to do. The flesh sets its desire, literally lust against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. So you have yourself you are positionally holy and blameless and pure as God looks at you through the blood of Jesus Christ. Indwelling you is sin, the flesh. And what does it do? It sets itself against who you are spiritually. It fights against it. It wants to kill the spirit, if that were even possible. That's its goal, is to kill it, to get it out of you. It wants to kill you as a Christian. It wants to destroy you. It sets itself against you. That's why when you have the desire to do something good, 
There's something in the back of your mind, Lord willing, not in the front of your mind, but in the back of your mind that causes you to say, I don't know if I want to do that. I'd rather do something else. I'd rather fulfill my comfort or do something fun or do something that would just make me happy on the surface. And these aren't just neutral enemies kind of who just get along. This is no Cold War. It is a hot war. Sin makes you hate what is godly and what is good. What is, what is godly, the spirit in that part of you that's after Christ, it makes you hate what is sinful. They're enemies with each other. And they fight against each other. There's a war going on inside of our minds. There's no neutrality here. There are no peace accords in the Christian life. In my yard. I'll stay over here. They'll just agree to stay over there and I'm sure they'll keep their end of the bargain and they won't come this way. Think if you were to try to make peace with disease in your body. I won't fight against it. I won't try to be healthy or take medication. And that cancer just needs to stay where it is and I'm sure it'll just stay there and won't try to consume my whole body. John Owen says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. You only have two choices. There's no middle ground. There's no gray area. There are times where it may seem that sin is quiet. And those times, because you have an enemy indwelling in you, you need to be on highest alert. Hebrews 12, verses 13 through 15 says this. That we are to pursue holiness. And and here's the, the, the power of this verse. To pursue holiness without which no one will see the kingdom of God. Now, how do you take that? I either pursue holiness or I don't get to see the kingdom of God. How do you understand that? One way you can look at that is that your witness would be destroyed. If you don't pursue holiness, no one around you will see the kingdom of God because they won't listen to your evangelistic words. They won't want to hear about the gospel and what the Bible says because they look at your life and they think it's unholy. Why would I want to be like that? It also is a warning to us about our own soul. God expects us, He demands of us, by His power, by His grace, to pursue holiness, to fight against sin. If we don't, we will reveal that we aren't His and we will not what? See the kingdom of God. The Apostle Paul said the very same thing. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, the last verse of the chapter. He said, I buffet my body. I bruise my body. He does damage to his own body, to his own flesh. Why? Because... I don't want to be disqualified, period. How can the Apostle Paul be disqualified? I mean, he's the Apostle Paul. And yet he understood the war that was going on in him. He understood the commands of Scripture that as a follower of Jesus Christ, he was still expected to fight against the sin that dwelt within him. And because of that, he fought, he buffeted, he bruised. 
Now, this in no way diminishes the doctrine of perseverance. Once God has you, you are His. We're not saying God has you and if you don't do such and such, then you're out. No, God has you. You are His. You're living by His grace. But what does the doctrine of perseverance tell you? Well, you've got to persevere. And perseverance is hard. It requires work. By God's grace, He gives you the ability to fight, to endure, to defeat the foe that indwells each one of us. There are times in, in our lives where we all get to a, a point where we're just tired. And we fought against a particular sin. We've wrestled with something for month after month, year after year. Or something that we think, I had this down, it was done, and now it's here again. It's, it's too much a part of who I am now, and I, I'm trying to get rid of it, and I, I'm just so frustrated, I'm so defeated. It's like a mountain that is overtaking me, and I can't handle it. And we get to a point where we just say, God, I can't do this anymore. And God says, I know. That's why I sent my son. Not just to take care of your sin that you committed before you knew Christ, but for all the sin that you commit and will commit after knowing Christ. God's grace is what strengthens us. He says, lean on me. Lean on me and fight. I've got you in my hands and I want you to fight. I am under you. I am over you. I'm working all through you. But you need to fight. That leads us to our final point. Our supernatural provision. How are we to be doing this? We understand we have an enemy. We understand God says, I, I want you to fight. We understand it's our duty. This is important. But how am I to be doing this? Well, we're to be doing it by the Spirit. Let me just read a few verses to you quickly. Galatians 5.16, we're commanded to walk by the Spirit. Romans 8.13, we are told this. If you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. Again, the power there is the Spirit. John 15, verses 1 through 5, in the vine and the branches passage, Christ says, I am the vine, you are the branches. You need to depend upon me, rely upon me, live or abide in me, and then you can do all things, for apart from me you can do nothing. And so again, you take into account that, that aspect of what Christ is communicating, what God is communicating in these passages, we are to, to live by His power, to live by the Spirit's power. Even back in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 3, we are said that to be people who are dead and are hidden with Christ in God. There is a, a losing of our own life and our own efforts and God coming in and empowering our efforts. So, now don't be theological extremists. It's so easy for us to do this. In uh, Galatians chapter 3 and verse 3, we are told this. Are you so foolish to the Galatians, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? 
The idea that, okay, I began by the Spirit, I started walking with Christ, and now I need to work and and do my own thing in my own power. That's the Galatians' fault. That's their error, and Paul railed on them for that. And that's not what we're saying this morning. But the, the tendency that we all have is to go to one extreme or the other and say, okay, I'm supposed to live by the Spirit, and that means the Spirit with a capital S and all the power, all the supernatural ability, He comes in me, and I do nothing. I just get to relax, and it's just going to happen. And it's going to be so exciting as God grows me and I just sit back and it's going to be wonderful. And then on the other side, there are those of you saying, I don't understand the spiritual stuff. I just got to do it. I've got to fight. I've got to bear down. I've got to get up all my energy and fight against it. I've got to make sure I drink well. I, I eat right. I get enough sleep. And then I'm going to just conquer everything that comes out in my way. It's not either of those. It's the Spirit empowering you to carry out the killing of sin in your life. This fight is not contrary to grace. This fight is a fruit of grace. This is a result of grace in your life. If you're fighting against sin, it's because God is working in you. This is not self-help. This is God-dependence. We are simply responding to Him. But we're doing something. Please turn to Philippians chapter 2. This is the last verse I'll have us look at. In just a few words here, the end of verse 12, beginning of verse 13 in Philippians chapter 2, you have encapsulated what we're trying to say this morning about this fight. The end of verse 12, starting with work out. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Who's working there? Is God working? Yes. Are you working? Yes. It's together God is empowering you to fight the fight against this mortal enemy called sin. And this is only for Christians. We call this this morning the fight of your life, not the fight for your life. If you are still fighting for your life, if you don't have Christ in your life, you need to deal with Him first and repent and give your life to Him first. For the follower of Jesus Christ, though, make it a point to live holy for Him and fight against the enemy of sin. Now, what are some ways we can do that? We need to be aware. We need to be vigilant. We need to be on the alert. Sin is always at work. Always at work. There is no time it rests. And so you, Christian, be aware. You need to say no. Sometimes you need to do some spirit filled. No, I'm not going to do that. Stop doing things that deaden you spiritually. Because if you do anything that deadens you spiritually, you are enlivening the flesh or the sin that dwells in you. Immerse your mind in the word. Think about God all the time. That's not weird. That's Christian. 
Ephesians tells us that we're to walk by the Spirit. We are to live by the Spirit. We are to be filled with the Spirit, doesn't it? And the verses right after that command describe what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That sounds kind of weird. Well, the Christian with a mind dwelling on Christ is just overflowing with spiritual truths. Pray continually. 1 Thessalonians 5. Pray continually. You know what that means in the Greek? It means pray continually. <laughs> all the time. You just pray. You're, you're talking to God all the time. He's just part of your normal life. You interact with Him. You're communing with Him. Finally, obey Scripture. Oh, this is so easy to say, so hard to do. Just do what it says. God will help us. God will help you. God will help me. This is so vital. We find it in so many places in Scripture because, listen, without understanding sin, you will never understand the need for a Savior. And without understanding sin, you have no idea about why you need to fight or what you need to fight or what the Christian life is all about. Let's pray together. Father, again, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the victory that we have in Jesus Christ. We thank You for the hope that we have, no matter what we feel like, no matter what we stumble into, because of Your grace, because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Those who are genuinely Yours are 100% confident and convinced of Your goodness and Your grace and the plan You have for us for eternity. We thank You for giving us at least a, a bit of an understanding of the mystery of how this all works together, of walking by the Spirit, fighting against the flesh, not in our own power, but indeed working. And we pray that You'd help us to understand and to apply these words today. Lord, we want to be people who tremble at Your Word and put to death the deeds of the flesh. In Jesus' name, Amen.